Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. They have a huge collection of reviews and news commentary from all of the Dice Tower Podcast uh, Network family. You can search a game that you're thinking about buying and check out all of the content that is there available for you before you make your purchase. Um, So it is a great resource for board gamers everywhere. Uh, Also, of course, there's uh, lots of great news and reviews and commentary from Tom and Z and uh, the whole gang over there at the Dice Tower. So go check them out. The Longview is generously sponsored by GameSurplus.com. GameSurplus.com imports for you. They are a fantastic uh, resource for board gamers who are looking for hard-to-find games, uh, games that uh, have not yet been widely released here in the United States. You can always find at GameSurplus.com, the latest expansion for Istanbul, for example. Um, I don't think it's available anywhere, but it's available at Game Surplus. So go check out all that they have to offer and why their customer service is so legendary uh, in the board gaming community and, and why they're my favorite whenever I'm thinking about buying a board game online. That's GameSurplus.com. I also want to give a shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you live in the northeastern PA region um, or anywhere near Interstate 80, uh, it's a hop, skip, and a jump away. Get right off on the Main Street exit, and you'll find them just as fast as possible. Within about uh, two miles, I think, is all that it takes to get to Main Street from there. Um, there are lots of great shops uh, all along Main Street in uh, historic Stroudsburg, and, of course, The Gamer's Edge has a huge amount of table space and open gaming space, a large selection of board games, card games, video games, vintage video games, comics, just about anything that you could want, you can find there at the Gamer's Edge. So go and check them out. And if you do decide to stop by, please be sure to tell them The Long View sent you. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View. And tonight I am very pleased to be joined once again uh, by special guest contributor Joe Salen. Uh, Joe uh, has been on the uh, podcast before, and he contacted me again and said he would like to maybe have the opportunity to talk about yet another one of his favorite games. This guy apparently has a lot of them, Uh, (laughs) this one being The Voyages of Marco Polo. So, Joe, I want to say hello, and thanks again for agreeing to be on the show tonight. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, I mean, when, when you talked a little bit about Marco Polo, uh, at first I was kind of like, eh, you know, okay, yeah, I'd, I've played that game quite a bit. And, uh, uh, you know, it's been around for a while, uh, even though it's been extraordinarily difficult to get, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that we may end up talking about a little bit later in the show. But uh, for people who are not aware, this is a game uh, that is put out uh, by Z-Man Games, um, but this is after it was a Hansem Gluck title originally, uh, which is actually how I ended up getting it um, <laughs> through Game Surplus, who imported it for me. Um, we had uh, the sort of North American distribution that was supposed to be kind of handled by Z-Man. Uh, it's a game for two to four players. Uh, it's listed as playing in about 40 to 100 minutes, uh, according to BGG, which I think is pretty accurate. And it is uh, designed by uh, Simone Luciani and Danielle Tashini. Uh, I'm sure I'm butchering those names, but I hope not too badly. And this is a game that is um, set, of course, uh, kind of in the time period in the life of Marco Polo and his uh, uh, Niccolo and Maffeo, uh, his uncles. And uh, this is all about sort of the the travels of Marco Polo across the Silk Road uh, to, you know, Kublai Khan's court in China and, um, you know, just sort of 
all of the sort of mystery of that kind of era, um, traveling and uh, uh, kind of uh, setting up trading posts and setting up trade routes and gaining prestige and trying to kind of make your way all the way kind of across the world. And it is, I would say, it's, it's one of those games that is in this sort of new, very kind of, uh, I'd say, almost a two or three, maybe even four-year-old trend of sort of dice games where you are using dice um, in order to, you know, select actions or they're kind of like dice manipulation sort of games, I guess I would call them. And um, this is in that kind of style of game. And it has some very, very unique features to it that, you know, we're going to be talking about. So... Uh, that's kind of just a sort of a very vague general overview of the game. Uh, my experience with it was I had heard a lot about it uh, through some posts on BGG. I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the Z-Man release, and it kind of never seemed to happen. And then it kind of happened, and I blinked, and I missed it, and it was gone. <laughs> Um, and so then, lo and behold, at Game Surplus, I saw, oh, you know, the, the German edition is in from Hansem Gluck. And I thought, hmm, you know, I, I wonder how what the language dependence is in this. And, hey, guess what? There really is no language dependence on it. It's all iconography. You get an English uh, download of the rules, and you're set to go. So I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, let me, let me check that out. Um, and pretty much everybody that I've introduced this game to has really liked it. Um, I've been drawn to it because of the theme. Uh, Marco Polo is actually someone that we kind of cover in the fifth grade curriculum um, mm. when we teach social studies and we talk about, you know, sort of uh, the development of sort of uh, uh, the, the history and, and we talk about uh, the Renaissance time period. We talk about North Africa and then we talk about uh, sort of the, the exploration and opening of the Far Eastern trade routes and stuff. So I was like, oh, cool. You know, I, I know a little bit about this topic and I've always been really interested in it. So I thought, yeah, you know, let's check it out. So that's kind of a, a little general overview of the game and sort of my backstory with it. So, Joe, how did you kind of first become aware of the game? What got you interested? And uh, how did you manage to grab a copy? <laughs> well, uh, very similar to you, actually, except uh, I had a direct, like, line from, almost from the, like, the publisher himself, I feel like, communicated to one of my good friends and gaming partners in my game group, whose uh, name is Jacob, and he actually, I did a lot of consultation with him before when I was preparing for this episode and made sure I passed all my points by him because he is, he sought out this game and was really just enamored by what he saw as going into the me mechanisms in it, um, and it ended up where it was a huge payoff for him because he sought out the game, and I think he was able to get even an English copy right when it released, like right when it dropped. Um, so I was playing this on like the night that it became available. He already had all the rules ready to go and everything. And um, basically, as dice games go, at this particular point in time, when it released a couple of years ago, it was, I guess it, you know, it technically says 2015. So it feels like it's been out a while. Yeah, yeah you were does, talking, yeah. but <laughs> And I don't know exactly how long it is, but it feels like it was, it was more than a year ago. I think it feels like about maybe April of last year that it hit the United States, somewhere around that time. And um, I was playing this on the very first night. And everybody in my game group knew me as the guy who just can't stand random in his games. And um, the challenge here was for me to sort of enjoy a dice game. And what he wanted to do to get me over the fact that I had difficulty with, with dealing with randomness in games was to give me uh, a person in this game whose special ability is that you literally don't ever choose... You don't ever have to roll dice. You just choose what their faces are. And that's that's a crazy thing when a game is essentially a dice game, but one of the main uh, players you can you can be, you know, one of the 
personalities you can become and have a variable player power is that you essentially treat the dice not like dice <laughs> at all. And so uh, after my first play, and then eventually I got a copy, and my copy's in German as well, uh, Jeff, because it was very hard to get a hold of it. I believe it's the Hans M. Gluck edition, the same as yours, but it's so language independent, um, and there's very few icons that you even have to know that it's uh, it's something that I don't have any sort of desire to get the English version because it's just easy to play. The only issue is that I need you know those nice player aids that are in yeah, German. Yeah. I I could use some of those in in English, but. Aside from that, I have, you know, the, the game is very smooth. You don't have many rules questions. I don't think I've ever had one actually come up, really. So, um, but, yeah, that's that's uh, my introduction to how I got to be playing Voyages of Marco Polo. And uh, it was really coming at it from from a friend who's into games. And, and we really, we play games for the most part for the mechanisms involved and the sort of, you know, the, the theme here was interesting enough but really the mechanism is just kind of drew us, drew him in and drew me in vicariously. And then I ended up loving the game, which we'll get to, I'm sure, a little bit more. Yeah, you know, you, you bring up some of the interesting aspects of the game, which is that when you play this game, uh, it is a game that sort of touted itself as having variable player powers, which has also been a very hot design theme. Um, I would say over the past uh, three or four years, this idea of uh, asymmetry and players having different sort of abilities or different advantages and disadvantages and whatnot. And so I kind of was kind of interested in this. But again, I'd heard about a lot of games and played a lot of games that had asymmetry. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. But when I started reading the forum threads and, and looking into the game a little bit more, basically people were describing these uh, characters that you can select Select, uh, or you can kind of do a random draw as um, having abilities that break the game, you know, that are just really extreme. And your example is one of the perfect ones where, you know, okay, we're going to play a dice game, but you get to choose whatever face you want. Have a happy day. Um, you know, or a, an, another person that um, basically can zoom about the board and pop up from one location to another as if by magic or that they're on a magic carpet, which is incredibly important in this game because movement is incredibly difficult in this game. <laughs> so you get this dude who's like Mr. Magic carpet, and he can pop up. I think it's like what from like a way. It's not like an oasis. It's like um, from if he's in one location, like he can just kind of pop up across the board in another location, and he doesn't have to do all of the arduous kind of traveling and whatnot uh, that others do. Um, somebody else, uh, you have two figures that you can use. And again, travel in this game and setting up trading posts and making it to different towns and cities is very important because when you get there, you're basically building more action selection sort of spaces or giving yourself uh, advantages as sort of beginning of round sort of income that you can kind of get that's going to give you an advantage that the other players don't have. Well, when you're moving in this game, it's it's a it you feel like you're on the Silk Road, like it's plodding, like it's really hard to pull <laughs> off just to go. You know, you look at the map and you're like, well, it's only three spots away. I go to this little town and then I go to this city <laughs> and I go to that little town. How hard can it be? You know, and then it turns out, well, it's going to cost you about five million dollars and uh, <laughs> you're going to need about twelve camels. And oh, by the way, um, you know, you're also going to have to spend. 
about another $4,000 um, to move along the road. And, and so it's just kind of crazy how difficult movement is. And so here you have a guy who breaks movement. And then you have another guy, the one I was just talking about, where you have two figures so that you can kind of like, you're like split. Like you can go in two totally different directions, which is a huge advantage. So like all of these different kind of characters are not just like subtle nuances of each other. They're drastically different, and they seem like they should not work. Like, they seem like they should give someone such an incredibly unfair advantage that, oh, I know I'm going to lose this because my mm -hmm. ability doesn't look all that awesome, but holy, you know, holy God, look at what that person can do. They're going to they're gonna wipe the floor with us. But it never seems to really happen. There, there, there must have been an incredible amount of work that went into balancing these characters because you think that you have this earth-shattering ability that's going to let you run away with the game, but then actually you end up not being able to do that because all of these abilities are actually kind of game-breaking. And so I loved that about the design. The second thing I really liked about this design was how the dice are used because in a lot of these kind of games where you kind of put dice on sort of action selection spaces and some are going to give you... A really nice benefit uh, for a very little cost. Others, you might have to use two or three dice. You might have to use a bunch of dice in order to gain a benefit. But then that spot's blocked, right? Because someone else did it. Well, in this game, you can always select an action that another player selected by basically plopping your die on top of their die. And you basically kind of have to pay a fee. Um, which can be expensive, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that bad because you, you have a little bit of choice depending on which die you use to activate the action again. And so a lot of the things that you want to do in the game, you're not going to be like totally stymied. Like someone's not going to take a spot and you're like, oh man, I can't do that. Well, I can if I really want to. Uh, I can if I'm willing to pay. And that's something that I really appreciated because again, um, it, it kind of blunts the random nature of dice um, in, in a lot of ways. And so I really appreciated that about the design. That got me really intrigued as well. So uh, those are kind of mechanically the things that sort of drew me in about this game. Um, were there other things that, that kind of grabbed you as well? Because you kind of alluded to those two things that I just talked about. I just wanted to give people a little bit more detail about what we were talking about there. Um, I yeah, I think there are a few more things that I might be able to add or at least expand upon what you said. I think you've covered uh, basically the things that I was most interested in uh, when I first played the game. Um, but what I'm going to, in doing this discussion, I want to kind of refer our listeners back to previous, my two previous um, installments here on the Longview as a guest host. And that would be to uh, Twa and to Terra Mystica, because I think that right. this game can draw on some of the successes that I see as, as being present in those games and almost feel like a synthesis of the both of them with its own sort of flavor and just a little side, like a little uh, whipped cream on the top, which is kind of like a little <laughs> ticket, to, ticket to ride in it too. Okay, all right. So let's, let's start here with Terra Mystica because that's where the variable player powers uh, lead me to refer to when I'm describing them. So uh, the in Terra Mystica, you know, the player powers with different races are vastly different and they make each game feel incredibly different to the point where when you play with one, you play with another one, you know, it feels like you're playing a whole different game. Like your goals change based on who you are. And I think that this game is able to pull that off 
the same as Terra Mystica is. Um, so very interesting to see that particular thing executed so well, like you had mentioned. Now, um, I'm gonna get. I, I am going to talk about negatives in this game, but I kind of wanted to save that maybe towards the end. So I'm gonna sure, uh, sure. But but one of the main ones actually is is bred by the exact uh, the variability being so high in this game. Um, but we'll get to that a little bit later. First, I wanted to discuss the the dice in the game. Um, and so this is a modern dice game, much like Twa is, where you've got dice, but you're not like when like you had mentioned when I roll a bunch of things, my brain doesn't go to oh crap, I didn't roll this. My brain goes to, what can I do with all of this? And one thing that this game immediately does to help balance the randomness of the dice is when you roll, you'll generally be rolling five dice, you know, kind of Yahtzee style. But what you immediately will do is count up all of your dice, uh, all the pips. And if you roll any less than 15, you get to take what's called compensation uh, to equal 15. So if I rolled like a 12, I would get to take three compensation. Compensation can either be money or camels, which are the two main resources that you'll be spending in this game to be moving about the map and fulfilling trade orders, which also include other resources. But um, money and camels are kind of like the two, like I would compare them to Twa in that money is like the money in Twa, where it's it's used to, to be able to take actions. Um, the, the principal one being go where, where other people have already gone. Like you have to pay that fee using your money. Um, the other camels are similar to the influence track in Twa. So this is the way that this game is a modern dice game, in my opinion. Camels can be spent to modify what you've rolled on your dice, so you can spend one single camel and re-roll a die, same as influence in Marco po or in uh, Twa. But if you spend two camels, you can directly move up or down one pip a single die that you have. Um, which which makes for some very difficult decisions to have to make because those camels are, of course, used in other ways in the game. So uh, th that right there, the fact that it's a modern dice game is really what, what pushed me to really, I guess, start exploring and, and feeling like there's this immense amount of depth. I have never seen a dice game that puts so much control in the hands of the players, even more so than the game Twa. In Twa, if you roll a bunch of garbage and you don't, I mean, if you don't have the influence to do anything with it, you're just messed. There's nothing that you can do in that game. You can roll very poorly in Twa. In Marco Polo, I've yet to see anybody say, this roll is impossible to do anything with. I've never seen that happen. You're able to accomplish things with your roll. Arguably, the lowest roll you can get in the game, uh, a Yahtzee of ones, five, it would be worth 10 compensation. Think about that. You get 10 compensation, which means you just rolled five ones, but now you can re-roll every single one of those dice once and still have five camels left over. I, I mean, you know, your, your low rolls here, what you roll is simply going to tell you what you, you know, it's going to make you start solving a puzzle in your brain. And that puzzle is going to depend on where other players are at. But whenever they go where you wanted to go, your thoughts are never, oh, I'm really wrecked now. They're always... How am I going to be able to squeeze this out now that they've went to the thing that I wanted to do or now that they've taken something that I was hoping for? So very much so, your, your brain is never at a block in this game so much as it just feels like you've always got tons of options, which is something that is not always the case when you've got dice in a game. So this game is just a prime example of how you can take dice and use it to just open up so many strategies for players to explore in a huge decision space. Yeah, I would agree uh, with everything that you said there. And it brings to mind a couple of games for me um, that maybe I can throw into the conversation here, which is um, I have 
had a lot of sort of bad luck with dice, and I've talked about it on the show before, made a lot of jokes about it. Uh, but modern dice games have really kind of brought in the idea of dice mitigation, okay? And so I would agree with what you just said there um, because of compensation, for example. Um, and I also think about games like Castles of Burgundy, where you have mm-hmm. the workers, and you can spend workers in order to change the pip value on your dice. Uh, another common sort of mechanic that I found in games like Castles of Burgundy is the notion that you know you can roll a one to a six or a six to a one. Um, you know, you, you don't. You, in other words, that they kind of are, are circular, right? It's like a full mm-hmm. circle. I, um, I and, believe so. They yeah. are in this game, but but it's really difficult to actually. I mean, that spending two camels to bump up by one, right? It, it's really tough to pull off. So it's definitely like like what you roll is a little bit more concrete than what it is in Castles of Burgundy, but you're always dealing with more dice, and there seems like there's just more options for you to play absolutely, with. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I also think of games like uh, Alien Frontiers, where you kind of mm-hmm. get those technology cards that are going to allow you to manipulate the dice so that you're not, as you said, just kind of hosed with a particular roll. The other thing that I think was really interesting about Marco Polo um, that I liked that was kind of new was that in many ways low dice rolls are actually pretty good um Mm -hmm. uh, low dice rolls can actually be uh kind of valuable to you um and are not always bad you know a lot of times you you get like a low die roll and in game terms depending on the game that that usually equates to something that's going to be ineffective well in marco polo that's not necessarily the case a low die roll may be exactly what you need um for example when you move in this game you need to put two dice onto the board in order to move and the number of spaces that you can move is actually determined by the lower um, die value. So if I put up a three and a two, I'm going to be able to move two spaces, okay? Um, if I only need um, to move uh, you know, a certain amount of space, um, I don't need high dice rolls. I don't need to kind of beat somebody. Um, in order to accomplish my goals. And so those low die rolls can be very useful to me. I can go to the favor of the con space. Um, Mm -hmm. Very useful to me. I don't need to have the highest die rolls in the world. And then because of how um, the placement of dice on top of other players' dice works, um, that can actually also kind of work to your advantage as well. So um, can you kind of just kind of give a basic overview of how that hot dice-on-dice action thing works? (laughs) (laughs) So in this game, everybody has their own color of dice. Uh, It's going to hearken to... So so this is different from Trois. In Trois, you're rolling dice and sort of placing them out center of the board. This is more similar to Kingsburg, I think, honestly. It's uh, very similar to Kingsburg in the way that you're rolling a handful of dice at the start of the round, and then turn each player in turn order is going to use a group a group being anything from one up to i think three dice as much you can ever use um in a spot and so whenever somebody blocks a spot you are allowed to go on top of their of of where they've blocked except you're never allowed to place your own like the same color of dice on top of other dice if that makes sense so um the reason this matters is once you've gone to a spot you can't go there again uh, but additionally, you have the ability in this game to acquire extra dice, which are going to be of a neutral color. In this case, it's black. And there's also a white die that's connected to a certain personality that you can be. Um, right. It's just like his extra thing is you get six dice every turn. Good luck getting compensation with that. But anyway, I digress from that. <laughs> the, the thing is, 
you know, you can always spend that white die wherever you want to because that white die has no other thing like it. But once you've gone to a certain space with your color of dice, you're not allowed to go there until the round is over. So, you you know, to be able to move in this game, I think, uh, Jeff, earlier you allo- alluded to movement being difficult. And that's something where if you play this game for the very first time, any listener that listens to me talk about this game and plays it for the first time, I want you to go into it. Uh, not ex- First of all, don't expect to win your first game. There is a ton of experienced... Uh, experience here that can really influence who's got an upper hand. Like, people who have played this game a lot are able to score over 100 points. Um, not not necessarily consistently, but they can get 100-point games with characters if they keep trying that character a few times. Um, and they're going to be able to score close to 100 with just about anybody in the game. Your first game of this, um, usually, I've, I very rarely see anybody get over 50. So that shows you an example, like just how how different the scores are. Also, the first thing that new players do is they don't think about movement as being difficult. They see movement as being a very important part of the game, which it is, but it's not the whole game. Like you're not just going to be zipping around the map here. Oh, believe me, don't go no, into no, it thinking. No, 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 no. No, (laughs) because, you know, you often think like, boy, I wish I could just turn around and go back and then go this other way. But once you discover uh -uh. how difficult movement is, you realize, yeah, I'm never going back. Like, no, you're you're not going to do that. No. Yeah. When you first play and you're like, all you do is just get an extra guy. You know that there's that guy that has two. He has two people that can move in different directions. Right. Right. You don't realize how really great that can be until you see somebody make it work. Um so the, the main thing here, though, that, that, that can really cloud new players' vision is that you're given tickets at the beginning of the game, and a lot of people have experience with Ticket to Ride, so when they read these tickets for the first time, they function very much like Ticket to Ride. You know, If you can get in this place and in this place, you get X amount of points. Um, so they're going to see those, and that's what they're going to try to accomplish in the entire game. And that might be something you can pull off, but at the same time, like... that's going. You know, if you haven't sort of planned on all the different trade... Uh, you know, lines you're setting up along the way and the way that you're going to fund your trip and also, you know, profit from it once you get there, you're going to see that your score is going to be, you know, just not even comparable to people who who um, have played this game a lot. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, definitely, because you you have to do a lot of advanced planning in this game because you really are only going to get, like, kind of one shot to make your route. And if you make a miscalculation... The game is not really long enough. Like one of the other virtues of this game, I think, is its playtime. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really is not a terribly long game, uh, but because of that, you don't really have much wiggle room. So if you make a mistake, you find yourself short, like one camel or something. Oh, that um, happened to me once. Oh yeah, you know, and, and I you're spent like fifteen minutes. 15 yep. minutes in the last round of the game because I had this one plant and I was literally one single one. camel short. Exactly. You know, and you made all these great plans and you might have tried to sort of, um, you know, uh, get like a, a little side benefit along the way and you're like, ooh, I can do this and that. And then you discover, oh my God, I made a mistake. No, I can't do that. And I just totally hosed myself uh, here at the end. So. There's an, an incredible amount of sort of long-term planning that has to happen when you first are looking at that board. Um, some of the routes that you can take are relatively easy. Others, like, a, God forbid you try to travel by sea. 
You know, uh, that's that's just, <laughs> you know, I think it's like, oh, you can move from here to here, but it costs you like 12 camels and $5 million. You know, it's oh, like yeah. $12. And uh, money is really tight in this game, too. It can be very difficult. So, mm-hmm. you know, everything requires you to kind of have that initial vision. You have to kind of have that plan. And I think this is why, as you so accurately said, you really need to, like, the game rewards uh, repeated play, and it rewards repeated play with the same character. Because just like in Terra Mystica, which you brought up earlier, or just like playing a coin game where you play a Mm -hmm. faction, you're going to kind of learn how that faction works. You're going to learn the strengths and weaknesses of that faction the more you play it. And you're going to get better and better at it. And so... You know, I've had games where I look at those ticket cards and I'm like, okay, well, there's no way looking at this board, looking at what my ability is, um, looking at sort of how the cities came out, because there's some randomization to the setup where um, you you have an awful lot of sort of tiles that are going to go out onto the board and they can be different from game to game as far as what the the sort of bonuses and the abilities of the uh, major cities are going to be, which give you sort of new action selection spaces that anybody can use who's been to that city. So if you travel there, you're going to be able to use this ability. So a lot of times you're looking at the board and you're thinking, okay, this is what my person can do. Um, That city is going to really like lend itself well that there's going to be a nice synergy there but to get there i have to go through here so here i'm going to need this and so you have to kind of do all of this analysis before you even really play the game in order to play it really effectively and as you said a lot of people are going to look at like those goal cards and think okay this is my whole game and you know it took me a while to kind of understand that like those are great those are great little bonuses if you can get them but a lot of times it's it behooves you to kind of ignore them to a certain extent unless they happen to coincide with the other sort of larger ambitions and plans that you have. So that's another thing about this game that I've really, really enjoyed. Um, You know, one thing we haven't talked about, Joe, that I I think probably bears mentioning is the whole sort of um, contract part of this game where you are attempting Mm -hmm. to fulfill contracts because you are able to sort of gain goods. We're talking about things like silk and spices and gold and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And there are contracts in a sort of a a nice little system at the bottom of the board where you can sort of gather up these contracts and then you try to fulfill the contracts with the goods that you receive. Um, And that's like a whole nother sort of part of this game. So, um, you know, that's something that I kind of found... Uh, alternately really, really fun or really, really frustrating because it seems like a lot of times I miss out on those contracts. I'd see a contract I wanted, but I couldn't, because of how turn order worked, I couldn't get myself down there in time before somebody kind of scooped those contracts up. Turn order in this game is another really interesting thing, which is whoever was the last person to choose to move um, in the uh, previous round is going to be the start player. So if I move and then, you know, you put your dice on top of mine to do a movement action and then the third person doesn't move this round, you're actually going to get to go first that next round. Well, if you're sitting to my left, that means I'm now going third effectively for Mm -hmm. the next round. And a lot of times that alone can really kind of hurt. And Mm -hmm. so that's a whole nother thing to think about. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about these sort of contracts and, and how you feel they integrate into the game? Oh yeah, sure. So we just finished up talking about the sort of the places on the board and the and the movement, which I think is controversial to people who are brand new to the game because it's difficult 
to understand how it how it works and you have some sort of preconceptions and misconceptions at the beginning of the game and it can be tough when you're learning the game but once you know the game well that's like that just hooks you and you that's what you love about the game is that movement is not something you just do willy-nilly um on on the flip side i think that the contracts which you've mentioned, which every contract uh, is something that you, you generally acquire them by going to a single spot on the board, which allows you to take contracts based on the value of die you put there. The higher the value of the die, the higher the contract you can take. And then if you take the highest ones that are there, you can also get some income with them too in the form of camels or money. But you have to choose those ones. So you're not allowed to really t- uh, pick which ones you take. Um, the big thing here is that not all contracts are created equal. And that these contracts are literally just all of them are put together in one pot and then just shuffled, uh, and and then each round is put out. You put out six or five stacks of them because there's five rounds, and you just flip them all face up in the random order at the beginning of every round. So, like I said, not every contract is created equal, and whoever is first to go there is the person who gets first pick of what contract goes. But they do, you know, thankfully they slide down after the first person chooses, so they get easier and cheaper. But as we mentioned before, if you're not the first person to go, you're going to have to pay to get those contracts. So once you have a contract, there's going to be some, you know, essentially it's just a conversion um, where you're going to have resources on one side and you're going to be turning those resources, which generally include camels all the time. And then there's three resources in the game, gold, silk, and spice. And those resources are going to be in some sort of a combination along with camels. And then on the other side, you're going to be getting... Uh, you know, whenever you turn these things in as a free action, you'll flip that over, put it in your completed contract stack, and get whatever's on the right-hand side, which is generally going to include points. Uh, sometimes will include getting some of your camels back or getting more camels. You can get uh, the extra neutral die. You can get one of those and immediately roll it. You may also get a free movement. And huge, huge. Oh, these movement contracts are absolutely huge. Like getting to move this, this right here, you know, if you're, if you set it up right, you can use that free movement. You can complete this contract, use that free movement so that you're able to drop an extra trading post down, which gives you not only access to whatever that spot gives, which could either be a spot for you to place dice, or there's also sort of a, an income phase in this game where you're able to, every single round, get this income, um, which includes extra camels, extra gold, combination of camels and gold, points, uh, I mean, extra goods of your choice, two goods that are not the same of your choice. So, I mean, like, these these spaces can be just huge, you know, to get around the, the map. So you want to be in as many spots as you can, and these extra move contracts are incredibly powerful if you know what to do with them. So um, what I would say is the reason this is an area of contention with what I would consider the more experienced gamers in the game is that... It puts an awful lot of emphasis on who's able to get the right contracts at the right time and the randomness of when those movement contracts come up in that line. So everybody starts the game with a certain balanced starting contract, but from there on out, it's kind of the Wild West when it comes to who gets the contracts when. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, and it's it's an area that, again, you know, at first blush, most people, when they play the game, I know I did this the first time that I played and then even the second time. Um, I didn't really value certain contracts the way I should have. You know, I was looking straight at, like, what? how many victory points is it giving me? How many mm-hmm. points is it worth, you know? 
um, as being sort of the determining factor. Like, how many points is it worth and how cheap is it? Like, meaning how easy is it going to be for me to fulfill that contract? But in actuality, getting some of those other benefits, like you mentioned, uh, the neutral die or being able to, um, you know, get a free movement uh, or, you know, I think there's even, aren't there contracts that give you contracts? Yeah, like oh, it, yeah, you get, like, a free random contract. So you're exactly, only allowed to have right. two of these at a time. And so if you complete one of those and you immediately get to draw a new one, you can, of course, ditch them whenever you want to. So if you draw one that's just not fitting with, with what you're set up to do, you, you don't have to keep it necessarily. But, yeah, but just, like, the, the fact that it can replace itself and now you've still got more things to be able to work on acquiring goods. Absolutely. It, and, and, you know, the fact that you got that contract for free – means I didn't have to place any dice in order to gain a contract, which means I now have an opportunity to go somewhere else on the board and be, you know, uh, get to do something else that I wasn't going to be able to do had I had to use a die in order to take a contract. So there, there's all of these kind of little subtleties to that contract row. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as you indicated, uh, you, you can kind of get sort of a little bit hosed depending on the turn order and depending on what the flop of the contracts is, um, you know, and, and the dice that are rolled and, and whatnot. So uh, these are all kinds of interesting parts about that sort of contract part of the game. And I, you know, definitely feel that it can be a valid path um, for people to take. I mean, you get bonus points for whoever has the most contracts at the end of the game, whoever's fulfilled the most contracts. Uh, the contracts themselves, as I've already talked about, can be worth a substantial number of points uh you know i've seen people kind of go straight you know merchant kind of strategy on this and you know they, they've been pretty successful with it especially if they target sort of spaces that give them free resources um, when it comes to those cities and and the income spaces that you can grab in the town so uh, all of these kind of different strategies sort of evolve during the course of the game but i don't think there is any way to deny your central point which is there is definitely some randomness there that may rub people the wrong way absolutely and what i would go further to, to exactly what you said jeff i couldn't have said it any better i mean the the amount of decisions and the amount of variability between games is just huge and through the roof here because of the order those contracts come out in however the, the it does in my opinion it's it's my least favorite element of the game um, in terms of adding an element of variability that the players just can't control, and that that sort of makes the game a lot more tactical. Whereas you had mentioned earlier, like like there's so much really long term strategy in this game because once you've gone, once you've left Venice, you know, and sallied forth on your Silk Road journey, you are not going to be doubling back in, in any right, in any right. like yeah like productive fashion. The first game. Uh, one of one of my podcast co-hosts uh, back back on the the podcast I do, uh, he's he's kind of our silly like uh, like just kind of a goofy guy to play with. He's a, he's a load of fun. His name is Jonathan. In our first game of Marco Polo, he uh, got down to the bottom of the map where you had described, which is the sea, and it's extremely expensive to travel across the sea. And so he spent the entire first half of the game just accumulating enough wealth to be able to traverse the sea. Hooray! And he finally did it. And then once he got down there, he looked at his destination card and realized he had missed 
one spot that was <laughs> right up next to the beginning. So he then right, spent the right. second half of the game acquiring enough resources to make it all the way back. Right, right. When and he probably should have just let it go. No, <laughs> I told you most... another way, right, yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, he should not have been doing this. <laughs> I told you that most people score about 50 points in their first game of this. You know, if you score around 50, consider yourself fairly normal. Um, he scored in the 20s, oh, like the goodness. low 20s. It was hilarious to see. But, you know, I mean, he still was, you know, acquiring resources and taking actions. It was just that, you know, the, the amount, the difficulty in traveling here is is just kind of ridiculous. So, but that's that's how the long-term planning that goes into the actual travel of the game is just so huge. And then the amount of tactical nature in this game tends to be, you know, Mit- very mitigatable for the most part, but those contracts, you just simply can't beat getting a contract that lets you have that movement, that hooks you up to that spot, that gives you the income you immediately needed, to then do another movement, and then your next action that then hooks you up to a spot where you can place the dice, which gives you all the stuff that you needed to let you turn all the resources you currently have, which might be 30 camels, if you're playing with with uh, my buddy Jake who showed me the game, the last game that we just played to sort of warm, my, to warm me up for this uh, discussion... Uh, was he, he acquired just tons and tons and tons of camels, which I didn't realize what the point was, but that was because he had his eyeball on one of the the uh, cards that was out where if he had a trading post in that city, he could turn in three camels for a combination, for, for one of every good. He did that six times. That was the most resources I've ever seen anybody get in one spot. Right. And the amount of work that took him to get all of those camels was also just amazing to see him pull off so i mean there's just like what you see people at a high level of play do with this game is really really interesting um but there's there's it's not all sunshine and roses here jeff (laughs) god forbid right it's not all sunshine and roses so so let's let's get a little bit here into some things like here's where we're at with marco polo right it's a fairly new game and we're still sort of in the grace period where where this game has come out, it, it really has had, I think, a resounding critical success um, in that the people just really enjoy the game. Like, people who are into dice games enjoy the game. Um, people who are into Euro games and, you know, like, heavy strategy games enjoy the game. And it plays in this very manageable amount of time yep. with every game feeling just significantly different from the last game. Not only... Because you can be a different personality and play that one, like you had mentioned, you play that same personality three times, and you start to get a feel for how you're, you know, how you can be successful with them. You've also got the entire board is set up in a random way. So let's let's you know let's not talk about the contracts right now. That's you know that's 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 very random. There's not little that players can do to to account for those those contracts coming out at specific times. However, the board itself is seated at the beginning of the game out of a deck of I believe 25 cards. You're going to choose 10 of them, randomly, sh- you know, choose randomly, choose 10, and then shuffle each of them. Well, not shuffle them, just place them face up in a spot on the board that has a space for that. If you think about this, each of those cards is, is different in a meaningful way, and they give you different things. Like some of them allow you to get resources, other ones let you to, allow you to turn resources into points. Some of them allow you to turn resources into movement. Some of them allow you to turn resources into other resources. There's, there's several different things. They've really thought this thing out. And. It, what that makes me think of, think about it. You've got 25 total possible cards, and you choose 10 of them, and those 10 are going to interact differently in every game. What does this make you think of? It makes me think of Dominion, kind of. It's kind right, of similar right. to that. Where the, the amount of replayability just in the board alone is kind of like Dominion. 
which is kind of amazing. I mean, they're not nearly as different fundamentally as the cards in Dominion, don't get me wrong, but they do change the feel of the game, and where they well, are at on the board also changes Exactly, the the and, and that was the only thing I was going to interject there, which is that it's not just the fact that there are different uh, sort of uh, cards that are going to be coming out that are going to determine basically what the cities are going to be offering in this game, but because of the movement question that we've been talking about for for a while here spatially where those cards end up where you know where they end up flopping on the board becomes hugely important and adds a lot of sort of variety to the game so even though you might have um, eight out of the ten of the same, you're like, oh my god, you know, somehow I've seen all these before. Well, if they're in <laughs> different locations, that's going to completely change your approach to the game, yes? Oh, absolutely. And where they are at will determine what is better characters to be able to choose. So, to give you an example, um, every space on the board that we've discussed is, like, connected to a city that's some, some of some sort of strategic importance on the Silk Route. And, uh, the Silk Road. And, uh, I, I, I might... I might be kind of missing things there, Jeff. You're the you're the, the history teacher, but you know, <laughs> mechanically, I'm fine calling in, it a route. Yeah, it's fine. It's whatever. It's a it route. Yeah, <laughs> so the Silk Road, Silk Route, whatever. Silk Road. Yeah. It's, it's, These it's, places on the board are are all go, generally have either a source of income, and there's there's income cities, and then there's the sort of conversion or dice placement cities. Right. And so they're sort of space like every other one almost. And uh, the income is actually static, where there's six tiles. You always have the same six tiles. You may shuffle them, though I would question the balance of that game. They, the reason they, they, each of these tiles is like A, B, C, D, E, F. And so they're, they're titled that for a reason. Like They balance them so that the A tile, being close to the beginning, balances together with the characters. I, so I did you, that. I did that once. I shuffled them, and it made the game exponentially harder. Like, I, we almost boxed ourselves into a corner by messing with those blue um, town tiles. Mm -hmm. If you put them out in a sort of a random order and you end up kind of... Um, you can Yeah, you can seriously throw the game out of whack. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I agree with you there. Like, I, I did that once, and I don't know that I'll ever do that again. Um, you know, and that's those kind of blue town tiles, and you have the big city tiles, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so the big city tiles is kind of what we were talking about before. The blue is sort of those income. You get there, you grab that. Every turn you're going to get, you know, X number of camels, or every turn you're going to get this kind of, you know, extra income, whatever it happens to be. Um, Whereas the city ones are, as you said, they're like the dice placement locations once you're in there, right? But, yeah, I just want to echo what you said. For people out there who were listening, I would never attempt to shuffle those tiles that are lettered, uh, and, and I believe they're colored blue, uh, unless mm -hmm. you really have played this game a lot and are just ready to kind of, like, push yourself and push the envelope of the game a little bit. And mm -hmm. as you said, understand that you might actually damage the sort of integrity of the game by doing mm -hmm. that. It can that's, break down. Yeah, that's what we found, yeah. Absolutely, it can break down. And that's that's been my experience when it's been shuffled. And, uh, yeah, it was usually shuffled by somebody who's, like, on a whim, like, ah, we can try this, and then you never do it again. Right, right. Because, it sounds like such a good idea. <laughs> uh -huh. it, I, I respect the fact that they gave you those just in case, but I think they just as easy could have been printed on the board. I mean, that 
they're really important that they come out in those specific places because you've got your income ones close to the beginning so that way you'll at least have the stuff that you need to be able to get across the map to eventually make it to the ones that give you points and other resources so it's yeah it gives you the stuff the ones that are close to where you start generally give you stuff that you're going to need no matter what you do and uh, the ones that are further away tend to be a little bit uh, one of them is a wild so that's great you know because you can choose whatever you want but the other one's definitely like that 3.1. I'm sure that people can mm -hmm. rush that and think, oh, if I get this in the first round, I'm 15 points. Right. Yeah, you won't be doing much else, though. <laughs> no, no, no. And that 15 points is made up by, like, two contracts, you know. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, that, that definitely would be something that I would caution people against. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I think we're in agreement there. Sure. The, the actual cards themselves, though, because of the nature of them, of, of some of them being... You know, the, the cards can can be the same sort of way, but there's a lot more variability within those cards because you're only ever going to see a small subset of the actual total amount of cards. Um, so there's there's I think there's eight total cities on the board where you place a card, but there's one city that's really close to Beijing called Sumatra, and in Sumatra you will place three cards. So everywhere else gets one card, but you place three in Sumatra. So this kind of incentivizes players to try to get across the map and make it down to Sumatra. But it really depends on what cards are going to be there. So I, I think when I started, you know, I said this isn't all sunshine and roses. And so far, all I've said is, sounds like sunshine and roses, maybe. But what I'm getting to is that the personalities are going to key off of which cards are available to you at what time. And I'll give you an example of this concretely, so hopefully it can make sense that way. One of the personalities is Kublai Khan. He starts you off in Beijing. This is a free 10 points. And you start off in the side of the map that's close to everything, like that's a lot easier to maneuver around. Because it, the game seems to intentionally make it difficult no matter what way you go from Venice to Beijing. It's tough to cross parts of the map. You're either going to go through the Himalayas, in which case you're going to need lots of camels, or you're going to go across the sea, in which case you're going to need lots of money to pay for your merchant ships. So there's a little bit of thematic flair there to go with it. But I mean, ultimately, you know, if you're thinking about this mechanically, Kublai Khan can be absolutely amazing, you know, getting you that 10 free points, but there has to be stuff that's within his grasp that makes it worth it because he doesn't have a special ability aside from the fact that he starts over in Beijing. That's it. Right. He doesn't get any, like, income. Excuse me. He doesn't give me any, any income round to round. He doesn't give you any special ability. It's just you start here. So... If Sumatra is chock full of the ability to acquire resources and maybe even spend those same resources for points, you can just go down there and just, you know, just glom off of Sumatra and it can be a huge strategy. On the same note, if there are other personalities that, that are keying off of, like, for example, there's one guy who's the, mer who's the merchant, you know, the Mercator guy, and if he, if, if people are using the market, he is going to benefit from it because he's the merchant. Now, if there's tons of cards that are out on the board that are already letting people avoid using the market, then that, that role is greatly devalued. And what I mean in saying this is that the total cards that are out, like looking at the cards that are out there on the table and looking at your different personalities is going to change the economy of the game. Like every game's economy is going to be meaningfully different. But what that means is that it is going to be inherently Unbalanced. Now, asynchronous in general is imbalanced. Like there, no matter how balanced you get it, there's going to be imbalances, right? It's, it's actually impossible when you've got um, when you've got different, you know, variable player powers, and they are very different from one another. That you're not going to have some sort of lack of balance. But what this game is currently lacking, 
is any ability for players to sort of gauge what's going to be a good personality at the beginning of the game and then sort of hedge their bets based on that. It's it, Imagine like a game like Agricola where you start with this hand of, of cards and drafting those cards is so so important to me because I need to be able to have control over, you know, that I don't just get hooked up with a, a, a stack of just the best cards in the game or my opponents get the same thing. Um, in this game, imagine if you just all drafted from one single hand and had to sort of wait your turn and then you chose between two, char- two cards when it came to your turn and that, that was it. And now you had to pretty much play the whole game of Agricola with one incredibly important card that you really didn't get to gauge all that much when you play. So um, what I'm saying that this game is currently lacking is the ability for players to do much in terms of balancing that inherent lack of, of player power balance. Now, you mentioned how balanced they were, and this is very true, but the nuances of the game is that what cards are out where is going to affect which players are quote-unquote overpowered. Well, you know, you make a compelling argument about that. Um, I haven't necessarily seen that happen to the point where I felt that the game was sort of uh, biased towards one character hugely, um, you know, more so than another. Um, What I, you know, but I can totally see from the examples that you're giving that yeah, I, I can I can see that happening. Um, I, my recollection might be a little fuzzy. It's been like a month or two since I played Marco Polo. I'd have to look at my Twitter feed and see when the last time was I played it. But I thought you kind of got to choose um, from uh, characters after the board was set up. Um, you do get to do this, but here's the issue, Jeff is that you're all going to randomly determine who is quote-unquote starting player, and whoever wins the you know random determination of who gets to choose, they get to be, as, as the first player, you know they get to either say, I want to choose my character first, which will make me go last, or I want to choose, I want to be first player, so that way I can get, I don't, I get to choose my character last, but I get to go first. And I would say that, in my experience at least, I think that it is always best to go last because you get to choose your character first. I don't believe that everything is created entirely equal. Get granted that the game board changes so much based on what cards are out. Right. Um, though you do see similar themes, I, I think that there is just a little bit of issue there. Now, here's here's where we're at with this game, though, Jeff. This is a new game, right? This is a game that's only been out a couple of years. So I don't think that it's it's created so much of an issue to where I'm not going to play the game in any way. Like, the game is still incredibly enjoyable. Right. But I think that... that here's where I was going with this. Expansion, right? I think that this re- game has a bit of room to grow because of that particular sort of, you know, the, the, the balancing, that letting players do a little bit more of the balancing. And what I'm drawing on here is the comparison I made earlier to Terra Mystica. Terra Mystica, right, right. And, and that this just allows players, because if you look at the... the personalities that are in the game are going to affect the power of the other personalities that are in the game. Um, For example, the last game that I played, I was the Mercator guy, and it was a three-player game. And what I didn't realize is that the board, as well as the particular power of one of the other players, was just going to make it so that he never needed to really get stuff from the market. So it wasn't a very reliable source of income for me. That was my own poor choice, but I really think that, uh, that there was a certain amount of, like, like now that I know about that, like like looking into my future games and how I'm going to be become a better player, 
I just think that I would go for that guy, you know, or I'd look at the table and I'd think, you know, before I choose this particular character, I'm going to make sure that I don't see this and this and this and this out on the board in a very easy, you know, low hanging fruit sort of way. Right, Um, right. You know, it also occurs to me, Joe, that, you know, this listening to all the things that you're describing here, it almost makes me wonder whether or not like one of those like wargaming sort of tricks might work here where you actually maybe have the players like and i'm only talking for like really experienced players because this is really what you're talking about here oh yeah, um, yeah you don't where, need this in your first right 10 right games. A- absolutely not but like where, where you look at it and um players bid you know they bid mm-hmm. victory points that's exactly know? what you do in terra and mystica that's exactly, exactly they, right mm-hmm. and and so i think that would be a really really good idea maybe to kind of mitigate that because then it's like okay everybody at this table who's played this game sees that this Mercator is going to crush it this game because mm-hmm. the board is going to be resource poor. So everybody's going to be coming to the market. So everybody wants this Mercator. And so you, you keep bidding until, you know, somebody, everybody else passes and it's like, okay, I ended up bidding, you know, eight victory points for that. Or I ended up bidding, you know, 10 victory points for that. And so I, I think that might be a good way um, to handle that. Now you said this is the way it handles it in Terra Mystica. Yeah, it's just a similar thing, like where you've got different, you know, you lay out everything. Um, and in Terra Mystica, there's not going to be, literally, it's going to be no random in that game once setup happens. So, I mean, there's definitely going to be a little bit more, um, which I wanted to touch on in a second here. But yeah, you just you just bid exactly what you said. Terra Mystica ripped off of War Games, and now let's see Marco Polo rip off of both of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that would be something that I would be definitely interested in trying. I I don't know that I feel exactly the same way you do about uh, wanting or or feeling like the game has room for expansion, and I'll tell you why. I think the main reason I think the game doesn't necessarily have room for expansion is because at the current number of rounds in the game, you're already hard-pressed to kind of get the things done that you need to do or that you actually want to do. Um, It's one of those games where you're always going to be left thinking, man, if there was just one round more, I would have been able to do this, this, and this, Mm -hmm. and I would have crushed it, you know? And a lot of times with expansions, what we're you know what you're talking about is you'd be talking about additional characters, and you might be talking about you know board extensions and different spaces, and uh, you know I just don't know that this game has room for that, um, and I don't know how necessary it is, other than the point that you bring up, which is a very valid point, which is there might be some inherent advantages depending on the characters that are selected to one person or another, but I think like a I think you could add that sort of bidding sort of mechanism as w- without adding anything else. Like, I don't know that I would necessarily want anything else. I mean, we haven't even talked about the black dice, you know, the, 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 the way that the game can open up for you. And you can extend around. You can, if you can afford those black dice and you grab a black die, boy, you can, you can make some hay with that thing. Um, there's just so many things that you can do, which is kind of how you started off the show, talking about this sort of rich uh, amount of options that you have and things to consider that I don't know. I never played that game and felt like, man, I wish there was an expansion for this or I wish there was more. Um, so I, I disagree with you a little bit there, but I mm-hmm. do agree with you that I think, uh, you know, some sort of a bidding mechanism would be really key here. Um, now, you know, when we talk about not being all sunshine and rainbows, 
I really, you know, my least favorite part of the game is the contracts. Um, and it's for exactly the reasons that, you know, we've discussed. Um, I, I find that those can be uh, really sort of off-putting to me in the way that those contracts come out. But I also have a little bit of an issue with the turn order. Um, mm-hmm. The turn order to me in this game is so hugely important from literally a financial point of view. Like Because if you have to place your dice on top of another player's dice, you are basically going to be paying the pip value of what is it you're paying the pip value of the lowest die that you place on that space so like let's go back to my earlier example i wanted to move one space so i placed a three and a one and Mm -hmm. i i I execute my move and i have to pay a certain amount of money in order to move one space okay now if you come behind me and the only two dice that you really have left, and you know you don't have camels, or you don't want to invest the camels because maybe you need the camels for the movement you're just about to do, you know you have um, you know a, a five and a six. Well, I, if I'm remembering the rules correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, because sometimes I, I get the things jumbled in my head. But you're going to have to pay five dollars basically in order to place those dice on top of mine, and then still pay the money for the amount of movement that you wanted maybe you only wanted to go two spaces but now when you're calculating all this in your head you're like man i'm not going to be able to afford to actually pull off this movement because of the money that i have to pay to stack my dice and all of that leads back to turn order because if you know you're consistently going later in the turn order uh, you really can be in a bind in this game, like something serious, because money doesn't really flow freely enough to allow you to kind of brush it off and say, eh, well, you know, all right, yeah, I'll throw some, I'll throw some money at that. I really want to do that this round. I don't want to wait until next round. Do, do you find that turn order can maybe play a larger role in this game than you might think and, you know, as compared to other games? I mean, or do you disagree with me? I agree with you 100%. That was going to be my next point here. Uh, the turn order here needs to be variable. This is a modern dice game. It needs to have a variable turn order. Um, now, everything that you just mentioned, the frustration of when you place your dice and all that stuff, now there is a personality in the game that doesn't have to pay when he goes on top of places. So you can just kind of do things at your own leisure, which is really a nice per, you know, thing. Once you've played with other characters, it seems like every time you learn a new character in this game, you're just like, oh, that's really nice because I remember how stressful <laughs> it was to have to right, play without right, right. this guy and it's really nice having him. Um, with, the, with the notable exception, I just wanted to mention this. If you look at online posts and online forums, all of these characters are fairly well balanced according to you know the people that have played this game an awful lot more than I have, except for, you mentioned the teleporter guy. Yeah. And that's because his ability is so difficult to pull off like you have to be moving at least three times to make that work because you have to move to the oasis then you have to move from oasis to oasis then you have to move again and at most you're going to be able to use that ability like three times in the game because moving three spots is expensive yes and if and you're only able to drop a trading post off if it's the last place you get to, with, of course, the exception of the one personality who lets you drop off trading posts as you do this huge global circuit. Uh, so almost every rule that we're talking about being sort of difficult part of the game, one of the personalities invariably is going to not have to worry about that part of the game, which is what makes the game so beautiful. 
Um, and I see what you're saying about it not needing expansions because of that. Um, but anyway, what you'd mentioned here, Jeff, was about turn order. And so I agree with you 100%. This game, you, you just simply can't have it to where somebody, you know, you end up getting screwed out of the action you wanted because the guy to your left traveled last. And now you have to go last because he traveled last. It just isn't fair. It's not fair when, especially if your dice, if you traveled right before him, you should be the person traveling next. It just needs variable turn order. You know, it's another game that does this with its expansion, Jeff. I'm going to give you three guesses. Uh, I, wait, 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 wait. I got this. Um, let's see. Um, uh, uh, War of the Ring, Warriors of Middle-Earth. <laughs> yes, exactly. That one? It's Terra Mystica. <laughs> I would have never so, thought you'd bring up Terra Mystica. What, what do you know, Jeff? I mean, that's because I had the exact same frustration, <laughs> the same frustrations that I have with Marco Polo, I have currently with, with, with uh, or I had at one time with Terra Mystica, and the expansion came out, and it was like the designers listened to everything that I was frustrated about, even though I never talked to them. It was almost as if they just kind of knew what the players wanted, which was really cool. So that's what I'm hoping for. That's the only reason I mentioned expansion here, because I really want to see variable turn order. I want to see whoever traveled last being first, and then whoever traveled second last being next. And that way, you know, you're not necessarily going around the turn the table in a circle. I think that that is something that is just like, you know, dice games where you can't do anything to mitigate your dice is becoming kind of an antiquated mechanic. At one point, at one point we're going to look back and say this has an old school Euro feel because there's so much random in it, you don't feel like you have any control. And I think that this is one, one area in which the game can be expanded a little bit. So that's my personal thinking is that, yes, it needs variable turn order, and, and I see a need there for the, the players to be able to balance out the strength of the different characters. Now, I, I agree with you, Jeff, that these characters feel extremely balanced. Like, you feel responsible for the reason that you either won or lost this game, at least at first. I just had a recent game, though, that made me clamor for the ability to balance because I, I, had, uh, I chose last in a three-player game. And, uh, you know, by the time it was my turn, it was between two two people that I could choose from. I felt like they were both fairly equal. I didn't really have much of a preference for one or the other, and I just chose one of them. And uh, what I didn't realize is that one of the other personalities just, just had this sick combo set up. Um, and it was, of course, Jacob, my friend who's played the game a lot, that just saw that and was able to, to pick that before me. Now... He made it work, too. So don't get me wrong. It's not always going to work. But at least in that situation, when you had sort of a hand in making it either easy or difficult for that individual to take that particular personality, I just think it, it allows the players just a little bit more effort to be able to sort of, you know, balance out what I think the game has done an excellent job of, but just due to the inherent imbalance of asynchronous powers, it, it's just going to, in, in, in my opinion... Jeff, here on The Long View, you talk about games that are worth that hundred, two hundred thousand plays. Right, right. And when you're playing this game that much, I, I think that it could become a problem. Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree that that you know once you get past that sort of initial ten, you know, um, once you get past that mark, and you really start to see um, a, a little bit wider view of the game, and you start to pick up on those things, and you've picked up on more of them than I have. Um, you, you do start to kind of have some questions. And, you know, this is one of those designs that uh, I think in some ways... Okay, um, when we talk about randomness in games, there's uh, the discussion has happened a lot. There's either uh, input randomness or output randomness, okay? And uh, dice are, are often 
sort of... they, they add a high degree of randomness just because of virtue of what they are, which are, you know, they're dice, and you don't know how they're going to roll. There have been lots of great designers who have come up with ways to mitigate and control that or give the players some feeling that they can uh, manipulate it so that it, you know, it doesn't feel so harsh to them, right? I think the problem here that you're sort of talking about is I kind of feel like the characters are all pretty well balanced, but I think, and I'm going to stick to that, even though you've brought up some really good examples where maybe I do think not, that they're all balanced, but except but, for the teleporter, I think that they say that they're all balanced. But that teleporter is one where these experienced players can hit a hundred points fairly easily with every character except for him. They're not right. able to do it with him. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Right. I'm going to interject. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. I I haven't seen that yet. I've I've found him pretty effective, but maybe I haven't played enough. Um, but well, I don't we're, think we're, I've played it enough because I didn't know. I didn't know until I was kind of researching for this. Right. Right. Uh, you know, the other thing that that I'm thinking of though is that not only is there randomness with the dice, but because of the random setup of the board, mm-hmm. I think th- the intersection or the interplay of those two random features is what's causing the problem. Absolutely, if Jeff, the you nailed board, it on the head. Right. Um, if the board was static, like, you know, you talked about, like, a pre-printed board, then mm. the game could become very scripted and very stale. It's like there would be optimal routes. People would figure out, you know, the best strategies and would be like, oh, well, if you do this and then you can collect this and then you go here and then, you know, that kind of ruins the game because you're able to solve it, right? And mm. the way to stop that is by having the random player powers maybe right um or you have everybody kind of uh with the same sort of abilities you get rid of the variable player powers but the random board setup is what keeps the game fresh well what we have here is we have two systems of randomization that when they interact sometimes they interact beautifully and sometimes they clash Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly how you would go about solving that because the the sort of the the sum total of all possible combinations between characters and board setup are too large. Yeah, they're for, astronomical. Yeah, yeah, for for anyone to be able to kind of figure out how to make the game sort of uh, balanced and sort of even all the time which is why i think the only way to kind of deal with it would have to be the auction mechanic right where where you're bidding for the characters and and the powers that you want and you kind of have to put your money where your mouth is you know it's like if you think you can really make this guy work i'm gonna make you pay for him because i think i can make him work but i'm only willing to give up you know x number of victory points at the end of the game if you're willing to give up more than me god bless you go ahead (laughs) show me that i'm wrong you know yeah exactly and and if i am i'll tip my hat to you but i think you're overvaluing that power in this game and i I think that would Mm -hmm. be the only way to do it because you've got too many factors um that are random which and in one area or in one sense, I guess I should say, is an incredible strength of the game, but in another, it, it's actually something that can cause difficulties with the game, yeah? Absolutely, and it comes with the territory here, Jeff. It's uh, it's something that you know is going to be a double-edged sword in terms of the variability. It's going to, on one side, give you that, you know, the legs that just keep you playing. Like, you mentioned 10 plays. That's how many plays it takes to just play every character in this game. Right. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible, when you add that to the, you know, multiply that by de- by the time of 
by the you know specific occurrences of different board setups in this game you end up with dominion times dominion just in the board and then you end up with that times the variable players and it just is incredible but the two systems the way that they interact definitely brings up the exact issue you've been talking about is it worth it absolutely it's worth it that we've been dealing with this here at the beginning i feel like it takes you at least 10 amazing great plays to even sense that that's an issue at all and you know there are so many games that are out there that that you know, where I, I'm not thinking about this at all because I just kind of accept it as a part of the game. But I love this game so much that it's just one little thing that, that I personally think could, could you know, like just push it in the direction where I don't feel like like I got screwed in this game. Like there was nothing I could do. And uh, I guess the, the specific instance that really made me feel this way more than anything was that uh, there's one. There's there's actually a small expansion already out for the game, Jeff. Did you know this? Is there really? No, I did not. You're telling me something I don't know. So it won. Um, the game won. Uh, you know, like a little golf clap here because it won the <laughs> Deutscher Spielpress. I think it was. It was some. I, I forget exactly what contest it was, but it was a pretty big uh, contest for heavier games. Right. Um, and it, it won this because. And it wasn't even nominated for like the Kinderspiel or anything like that, um, because it's just it simply is. Even though it's not that hard of a game and it's not that long of a game, it is a strategic game. Um, so, but it won an award, and because it won that award, they kind of churned out this really quick uh, promo almost. But it's really too big to be a promo. It it includes uh, three, I know oh four new characters to play as. So you know in the base game, I think there's eight. Because uh, there's one of them that just has three different versions. One for two players, one for three players, one for four. Right. That Mercator changes based on how many players you got. Um, kind of subtle changes, but they're, they're definitely necessary. And, and it seems like they scale pretty well. The, uh, the other new personalities, though, um, one of them specifically involves you taking all of those uh, city cards. or And I think you were calling them uh, uh, tokens earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yep. but this, each of the cities, you shuffle those, and then you deal six of them out face up for all players to see um, that are going to be attached to this particular character. They are now free actions that that person can take throughout the game by playing that card on their turn. And pretending as if they've activated it to the absolute best you can activate it, which is placing a six on any of those spots. Um, so that generally with those spots in the city, the more the higher your dice value is, the more stuff you get. This is this is a general thing in this game. The higher your dice, the more stuff you get. But like Jeff said, it balances where that you have to pay more based on if you're placing on top of somebody. Right. Um, however, on the board, you're not allowed to place on top of each other. Like you're not allowed to place on the. I'm sorry, I don't mean on the board on the uh, the trade routes. You're not allowed to place on top of each other. Anyway, though, these new characters um, add a... And, and there's a few new contracts as well. It's basically a new sheet of cardboard, and uh, uh, that's pretty much the whole thing is just one sheet of cardboard. But it adds four new characters, it adds a few new contracts, and it adds a whole bunch of these new little uh, exploration tokens. I forget exactly what they're called. But you take them all, all these exploration tokens, you shuffle them all, you put them face down, and then whenever a contract or some other ability lets you draw one, you draw... And they are randomly like you. You thought that those contracts were random. Oh, you are you are not gonna like these, Jeff. Because let me give you an example of what one of them is. On one of them, you flip it over, and hey, you get a camel. Great, I get a camel. On another one, you flip it over, and you get three camels. Okay. So it's just randomly unbalanced. Yeah, There's yeah, no- that doesn't work real well. Yeah, this does not gel well with the rest of the of the design of the game. So that's one particular character. That is just entirely like they added another dice and the type of random that this game works so hard to like, 
you know, it distinguish itself from. Um, so that's one character. In, in some ways, this feels like it's a little bit rushed out um, because of because of that character. You know, I mean, I, I understand what they did. It seems to me like kind of low hanging fruit, and just you know, this is really quick. Like this, make this a little bit random. It's a promo, so we don't have to you know hear our core gamers complain about it because it's just kind of gravy at this point. Um, but there's there's a couple of other characters that all see the other ones seem kind of like they're fairly balanced, you know, and and kind of make sense together when you look at the base game ones. But you got this one that's just really random and very, can be very terrible, uh, which is the random, you know, draw those tokens. And the other one can be absolutely amazing. And there was just, you know, you're always fighting over spots on the board, right, Jeff? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, pr- the problem with this character where you draw the six random cards is that those cards are now only available to that person. So unless you really study what that person has at their disposal at the beginning of the game, you're not going to really understand what they're capable of getting and what they're capable of doing with that. Because there's so much like this is similar to Terra Mystica in that you know there's there's a certain amount of points that you can get just from being all over the place on the board, and there's there's like incentives to being out on the board, just like there's incentives to getting more contracts. But just that that element of stuff that's private just doesn't gel well with the rest of the game. And I felt like it was still would have been fair had I been able to look at what the cards were, look at the board itself, and then be like, well, I think I can get this many points with that guy. Right. Whereas right. I, that was the first game I've ever seen anybody score over 100 points, and uh, it just felt like there was nothing I could do to slow him down. Um, yeah, that, to... it sounds a little awkward. It sounds a little heavy-handed, and, and I think uh, your analysis sounds like uh, one that I would have made too, which is, you know, let's let's just kind of throw this out there and, uh, you know, give some people some, some other stuff to play with. But, um, you know, the, the bad news about that kind of thing, when you put promos out like that, and having not played with them directly myself, I can't, like, you know, claim that they're horrible or, or you know, whatever. I'm just going off of what you're telling me here, um, is that if you include a promo like that and, you know, you, you play a game with somebody, it can really leave a bad impression. And mm-hmm. you can actually drive people away from... You know, what really is a a very, very intriguing game and a game that has a lot of legs and a lot of replay value. Oh, yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I I kind of agree with you that, you know, if they're going to do an expansion, I I, kind of want it to be something that is as equally well thought out and tested as it appears the rest of the game has been and not Mm -hmm. something that was kind of, you know, rushed out or where you're trying to tack on some mechanics like those little tokens and and things like that. Like, I'm not really interested in that. Like, I, I think the game delivers enough that... I don't really need anything else, you know. It's it's kind of like um, uh, you know you've been talking about with the parallel Terramistic all along. So, you know, overall, I think this is a game that you know definitely deserves a reprint. I think. Oh yeah. It would be nice if you know more people could play it. Uh, I would encourage people to go uh, you know send an email to uh, uh, Velma over there at games at gamesurplus.com just because I know she has regularly gotten those in, you know, the German mm-hmm. edition, the Hansem Gluck. Um, it, it just, uh, I don't know. Does cool stuff have them in stock again? Finally, it, it you know, they kind of just seem to, uh, it, it's just one of those kind of Z-Man things. I'm going to kind of go off on Z-Man here a little bit, but uh, ever since, it. you know, ever since they uh, were bought out by Philosophia, um, it just seems like, um, you know, they're just horribly mismanaged. I mean, just not really, yeah, you know, out of stock and cool stuff. Um, 
So, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of use cool stuff as my gauge of like, is it available? If it's available, cool <laughs> stuff probably has it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, if it's not available, then I go to Game Surplus because they'll import it for me. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just don't understand the business model. And it really started with, uh, what, Caverna? Where it's uh, like, oh, let's let's get a game that everybody really, really wants, and then eh, we'll print like 500 copies of it. <laughs> it's like this, a- this is like this G-Man problem here in the United States. They just don't print enough games for us. They they do like a really small initial print run, right? And uh, yeah, it's 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 enough to sell real quick, and they 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 are in the green with it, and then they you know they're not going to take any additional risk. It feels like, and I think that the the earliest game I can think of, even before Caverna. Would be the Palaces of Carrara. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a really bad example of of a game, really an excellent game that deserved. You know, it's got a ton of legs. The the amount of different like the way that your plays change based on the scoring cards that come out is just amazing. It's a really great game. Um, almost deserves its own episode of Longview, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. <laughs> hey, uh, Jeff. You know, I, we'll see. Maybe sometime down the down the road. Down the road. But it's the sure. Same thing. Yeah, because I've I've uh, played that game. Love that game. I mean, it's a it's a really really clever game. Um, and again, yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't get it. You couldn't get it in no. English. No, and I just, yeah, I just recently had a trade request, and I was like, is this the English copy? You know, and I, I kind of knew if anybody's trading it, they don't have the English copy. Like, those right, English right. copies are, are those are a, an endangered species. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's Z-Man. I mean, Z-Man within our group, you know, it's like if, if Z-Man comes out with a game, I mean, I guess if their marketing strategy is to scare all of the potential customers into rushing out and buying it while it's available, then maybe it's working, but it seems like more than not, it's just frustrating a bunch of people that would love to get the game but are yeah, stuck yeah. Uh, at the mercy of Z-Man's poor ability to gauge the interest and produce enough of the game unless it's Pandemic Legacy. Right, right. And and that's kind of, you know, uh, I always think about like, you know, uh, listening to people like Steve Bonacore, you know, who says, hey, you know, people, you know, give these publishers a break. You know, if, if they sell out of a game at Gen Con, believe me, they wanted to sell you as many as they possibly could. You know, no publisher goes to, you know, market and says, you know, I'm going to intentionally limit uh, myself and the number of sales I can make and leave cash there on the table because uh, I I just decided I'm going to do that. Like, you, you want to sell. Like, if, if a game takes off, you want to have enough copies to sell it. Um, but it seems like Z-Man really just doesn't seem to care. And, you know, they don't have a large initial print run as you indicated and then if they do do a reprint it like takes them like a year to do a reprint and then <laughs> by often, the time it finally right and then nobody even care. cares about yeah, the nobody game. cares anymore you know my local game store uh you know that that uh, i talk about on the show here at gamer's edge uh in stroudsburg they've had a copy of caverna sitting on their shelf for like i don't know a year and you know no one cares no one wants it you know, it's like they missed their moment. You know, they missed Jeff, their shot. And this, it's just such a shame. This example might not work just because Agricola is such a better game that people already have Agricola. Right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving you a hard time. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've actually moved back to Agricola from Caverna. Um, mm-hmm. It's got, yeah, yeah, Caverna's got a shelf life and Agricola doesn't, so that's yeah. just the difference here. That's, I think that's that, kind of the way it is, yeah. And I think people discovered that, but I think about all of the money that Z-Man left behind mm-hmm. oh, by yeah. not it's, having that. Or Fields of Arl, mm-hmm. you know? People yep. loved that game. They're, it was impossible to get. 
Um, so yeah, kind of kind of just general silliness. But anyway, um, rather than continuing to go on about the shenanigans of Z-Man, um, yeah, I mean, is is there anything else that's uh, you know, that you feel we haven't covered here about Marco Polo? I mean, we've talked about the mechanics. We've talked about um, the things that make it unique. We've talked about the issues or problems with it. We talked about player count, playtime, um, suggestions for improvement. Is there anything else that you wanted to kind of bring up here uh, before we wrap up our conversation here about Marco Polo? Make a quick case for the expansion, if you don't mind. Uh, because here's, here's what I see. You're here's really what I harping see. on this, man. Well, no, and here's, here's the thing. Like, we've talked about the mechanical changes that would just update the game, right? And, right, and I think right. we're on the same page, at least about the variable turn order. Um, I also would say that maybe you should take the contracts and have them separated by ones that give movement and ones that don't and have a way of distributing them fairly evenly to make sure that, you know, the turn that I finally got first player, that it's not like, you know, I don't get any movement contracts available just because it seems like those ones are just so, can be used so effectively and can really just dominate any of the other contracts out there. Um, anyway, though, that's that's my last question or my last statement about balance. Now about the board, <laughs> here's what I think, Jeff. I think that you could have a whole new, like, you could have this game, you know, have it be called, like, the Voyages of, and, you know, like, not to drop a, a Dice Tower F word here, but uh, the Voyages of Vasco da Gama, you know, or or the Voyages of, of um, like, you know, Magellan, or just any, any, there are other directions that you can head with in terms of, like, establishing trade routes and being able to sort of change by having different choke points on the map and uh, having them connect in different sort of interesting ways. Right, in addition right. to that, you could have you know some thematic tied in uh, new players uh, and, and new abilities. You could also have, of course, new cards and new resources, but it doesn't necessarily have to be all new resources. And, and I'm not talking about just a new skin. I'm, I, you know what I mean? Like that just, to me, it seems like there's some territory there where you're not going to add time onto the game. Like I think you mentioned that, like this game really feels like it's really the right time. Like it's, it's a Euro that gets done just, just faster than you wanted it to, which is just perfect. I mean, it really knows when to end. And uh, I, I just think though that, that, the, that, the, that the places that I hope this game will go is, you know, like I've heard, here's here's the talk of the grapevine, Jeff, is that there is going to be a standalone game that is that is like inspired or in the same same trilogy, so or in the same uh, series. Nice, nice. And I've heard this is already in the works. So this is kind of you know we're at this point right now where this is an excellent game, listeners. I'm so sorry that it's so difficult to get a hold of Velma. Um, you know, do your, do your best, please, you know, get these people the game if they want it, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're hearing what I'm saying, if they're picking up what I'm laying down, then please get them that game because it really is that great of a game and it doesn't really matter. I've got the German game and, and, uh, you know, I, I am just fine playing it. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a game that has those legs and, yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. I yeah. Yeah. love playing it. Yeah. I mean, really the only thing that you're missing in the German version we already talked about, which is the player aid. And other than that, you know, uh, everything is really language independent. Um, the rule book is in English. It's easily available to print offline. Um, you know, and, and the rules are good. You know, that the rules are uh, clear. It, it's not, it's the, the complexity in the game is in the planning required and in the decisions that you make and in the timing, okay? The complexity is not in how difficult is it to teach the game. It's actually not that difficult once you get going. It, it flows very smoothly. It's just a question of 
you know, can you play effectively, right? Anybody can play. The question is, can you play effectively? And with repeated plays, as you've talked about over and over tonight, you know, you will be more effective each and every time that you play, and you'll grow with the game, which is really cool. So, well, you know, Joe, I want to thank you very much for uh, reaching out and saying, you know, uh, that you would like to do an episode about this game. I think it definitely deserves it. I think it's got some innovative ideas in it that, um, you know, really help the game achieve a level of um, longevity that is kind of the hallmark of, of what we try to talk about here on the show is, you know, games that are going to stand that test of time or that have already stood the test of time. So uh, I want to appreciate, I, I want to thank you for uh, reaching out and, and asking uh, to do the episode. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It was really a great experience this time. I, I would just encourage our listeners, you know, go back and listen to the other episodes of The Long View that you see me on because I feel like this is almost like a trilogy where where I set up a couple of things and we, we did as, as a group set up a couple of things and I think this is a chance to get to sort of review and revisit both of those earlier things that I talked about enjoying. You know, you mentioned like that I'm getting to talk about my favorite games. Well, it was really cool this time to be able to have your input so strong uh, present at different times. Like, like you were definitely a participant as well as facilitator, Jeff, and I appreciated you because, I mean, that, that argument, you know, that sort of like, you know, I'm going to disagree with you there. I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> Jeff getting a little bit feisty on me here. Like, I get I, I got, I got a little see feisty. This coming. I'm getting That's a little crotchety me. in my old age, you know. These <laughs> things happen, but uh, well, before... <laughs> throw me a curveball. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, listen. Before we sign off, though, uh, you did mention your podcast, and for people who are not familiar, I want to kind of give them a chance to kind of learn a little bit about you. You uh, have a podcast that uh, I listen to pretty regularly. Um, it's The Good, The Bored, and The Ugly. And uh, this is usually a trio, at least recently, of uh, you and uh, Andrew Dennison and Trent Ham. Uh, people mm -hmm. from the show will remember Trent from when we did a Netrunner episode. Uh, it seems like ages ago. Um, and, and he really is kind of like a, a, a game guru in a lot of ways. And oh, the three yeah. of you guys have some really interesting and spirited conversations. Um, Andrew really seems to be the guy that has uh, evolved and, and kind of gravitated towards really heavy games. He's, he's going to oh, talk yeah. about 18xx games on your show. He's going to talk about games like Art, you know, Art right or you know uh, he's the guy that i would expect to hear talk about democker you know i mean like it's just <laughs> that's gonna be andrew's thing right um you know oh, trent's yeah. kind of the omnivore you know who oh, yeah. um is is uh, willing to play anything and is uh, refreshingly opinionated you know he'll tell you when he likes something he'll tell you when mm -hmm. he doesn't and he doesn't particularly care what you think which is which is nice um and then you know you're kind of that perfect guy in the middle there who kind of uh, uh lives a little in both worlds um, and, you know, sort of gives your sort of slant on things and, you know, sort of coordinates and, and uh, sometimes referees uh, these, <laughs> these uh, all the, the three personalities on the show. So I just wanted to kind of let people know a little bit about what, you know, my impression and experience with your show is. And, you know, you guys have been broadcasting for, geez, is it like a couple of years now? So Yeah, um, we're it, coming it, up on episode 100 so, Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, is there anything else you want to tell people a little bit about your show or where they could find you or how they could subscribe or where they could get a listen? Wow, Jeff. Uh, first, just thank you for all those kind words. I'm really blown backwards here. I'm kind of at a loss. Just I, I really appreciate all that. And, and I, I mean, you know, it's so great to hear somebody <laughs> to hear it to hear it from you, Jeff, is, is something really special. I mean, you've 
you've kind of been my my board gaming godfather of sorts so <laughs> yeah well that's very nice of you to say i i appreciate that uh yeah you know it's it's been fun uh, listening to your guys show and and uh, uh watching you guys uh, find your rhythm and uh uh, explore really interesting topics. You know, you, you always have something interesting. The, the last episode I think I listened to was uh, P500 uh, GMT's kind of system versus uh, Kickstarters and companies that use Kickstarters as pre-order systems and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And what are the ins and outs and pros and cons of that? And uh, you know, you've done shows about you know uh, player interaction, games with little interaction, games with a lot of interaction. You know, all these different mm-hmm. kinds of topics that are really interesting. So where can where can people find you guys, Joe? Uh, we are available on iTunes uh, as as of the moment. You can find us there. You can subscribe to us. Uh, uh, we have our own uh, guild that we that I, I post infrequent things in. Uh, just you know, if you you want to keep and follow the podcast, I can try to keep you updated. If you if you look for the good, the board, and the ugly under guilds, uh, I'm I'm of course an active member of both uh, the heavy cardboard guild as well as the long view guild, and I subscribe to everything that you ever post on there, Jeff, and make sure I keep in <laughs> touch and keep uh, keep up to date on on your first looks that are that are just recently coming out as well as i keep up to date with with your full episodes and i'm always looking looking forward to to seeing the the games and, and it's, occasionally i'll i'll see one in my, my mail you know like episode of this post and i'm like oh darn i missed that one I, you know some, somebody beat me to it that's such an excellent game and then i uh, i'll go for a listen of it but uh you know we uh we're basically just on itunes and uh you can you know you can reach out to me on board game geek uh if if you if you want if if anybody's interested in the guild and participating in a discussion as a basis of you know this this episode on marco polo i'd love to try to try to throw something up there once this is posted and i i, I just really love participating in in this active community of board gamers and and uh, really that's where the the podcast comes from is just continuing that sort of discussion and also kind of relegating it to not eat up all of my game nights <laughs> so we can actually play games when when it's time to play games then we can talk about games when we can't be playing games right there you go there you go that is that is a delicate balance to strike sometimes isn't it but uh you guys do a nice job of that well thanks for letting us know uh a little bit about the show and where uh, people can find you and uh you know thanks again for uh your contributions to uh, the board gaming hobby uh congratulations on coming up on episode 100 there that's always an exciting milestone at least it was for me you know that 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 notion of that's a substantial number you know that's not just it'll a, be coming up a fly by night number in a few yeah. months I'm, I'm, i didn't mean to to, to pre- Predate us here. I mean, you know, like it, we could we could get the asteroid here real quick and never hit it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank thank you thank you in advance. I just you know I kind of kind of got a little knock on wood. Uh, knock. Oops, oh no! Of course oh, my, and now my, you got my, the dogs. Yeah, that's I great. No, you, yeah, yeah, we're gonna yeah, totally yeah. keep that in post production too. <laughs> you knocked on the door. My dogs do that all the time. If I knock on anything, they think someone's at the door, and then they get barking and they're getting all fierce. And it's like, no, that you idiot. That was me. Um, yeah. They never. Oh, t- I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm still trying to calm down. <laughs> well, listen, I, thanks again for uh, being on the show, Joe. I appreciate your time. Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. It is it is a absolute blast. Keep up the good work here, sir, with the long view. It is a resource that the board gaming hobby could not do without. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So for Joe and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening. Um, And I think uh, both of us have done a great job of uh, pointing people towards Game Surplus. If you're interested in this game, I think it might be about the only place you're going to be able to Mm -hmm. uh, grab yourself a copy. So, um, you know, for uh, my sponsor, Game Surplus, for Joe, for myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night.